If you know me at all well, you'll know that I'm a big fan of the sitcom Frasier. It's the story of Frasier and Niles Crane, two brothers who are psychiatrists in Seattle and who have very expensive and snobby taste. They're very pompous. They love the finer things in life and they're always craving the next new luxury item or experience. In one episode, they learn about an exclusive day spa which has opened in the neighborhood. Membership of the spa is by invitation only and they become obsessed with getting in. Eventually, they manage to persuade a friend who's a member of the spa to invite them and it is everything they ever dreamed of. Beautiful surroundings, five-star treatments, excellent service and it's the absolute lap of luxury. But no sooner have they got in and started to enjoy the spa, they notice something else. There's another level of membership that you can get, gold membership. They spot the enticing entrance of the gold area guarded by staff and they start to fantasize about what delights must they must be missing out on with just their rubbish basic membership. They become obsessed all over again, no longer content with what they have, they want to get gold membership. And thankfully, through another favor from another friend, they actually get the invite they need. They become gold members. And oh, is it special. They start to indulge in the various special treatments on offer. Honey butter face masks, full body wraps, a relaxation grotto full of rainforest sounds and props. But whilst they're blissfully enjoying the relaxation grotto, Fraser spots another door, which he believes must lead to another level of spa membership and exclusivity. This door is unguarded and he immediately forgets all the stuff that he's enjoying and he starts to head towards this next door, the door that he believes must lead to the platinum area. A staff member spots Frasier heading towards the, towards the door and politely informs him, you must stay where you are, that, that door's not for you, stay in this relaxation, relaxation grotto, please. But Frasier just becomes even more determined to go through this door and when the staff member is gone, he heads to it with Niles, ready to go through this platinum door. Unfortunately, he discovers that the door was actually just a fire exit. And Fraser and Niles find themselves not in a platinum area, but in the back alley behind the spa, in amongst a load of rubbish bins. And they can't get back in. They're actually stuck outside the spa in a whole heap of trouble. They end up chased off by a swarm of bees who have been attracted to their honey-based face masks. There was no platinum membership. Fraser and Niles actually had everything they could have, but they were seduced by the false idea of more and they end up losing the joy and the privilege that they already had. We've been studying our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians and today we're going to be looking at chapter 2 verses 6 to 23 and it's a great passage and it's really the meat of the letter. It's addressing some concerns which Paul has for the, ch the church, the Christians in Colossae and the main reason he's writing is contained really in this passage. And what's at stake, the thing he's passionately trying to communicate, are the kind of spiritual false promises which could entice the Colossian Christians through their own platinum door to the garbage bins if they're not careful. Before we go any further, let's read the passage and see what Paul's talking about. Colossians 2 verses 6 to 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to their head, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used? according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you wanted to summarize Paul's key message in Colossians in just two verses, then verses six and seven in this passage will be it. He says this, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What we've got in those two verses is a wonderful set of mixed metaphors. I love a good mixed metaphor. I remember John Kerry describing George Bush and saying that a zebra could never change its spots. And an old football manager, Stuart Pearce, saying that his team was looking for a carrot at the end of a tunnel. I love it when people get confused with a mixed metaphor. And Paul kind of does that here because as you see in these verses, he wants us to walk with Jesus, which implies you know movement in the journey. But he also said simultaneously, he wants us to be rooted in the ground like a tree. Now trees don't go walking, do they? And, but he also wants us to be built up like a building that is getting bigger and bigger. And then in, in the ESV, it says uh, about abounding in Thanksgiving. In other translations, it talks about being overflowing in Thanksgiving. So I don't know if you've ever seen a tree that is planted in the ground, anchored by roots, but is also able to walk while also getting bigger and bigger like a new building and also overflowing with something. That is quite some mixed metaphor, quite some image, isn't it? 
But Paul does this. He wants to mix the metaphors because he wants to underline just how comprehensive Jesus is, that he is enough. In fact, he's more than enough. He is everything we can need. All we could ever need is to walk with him, to be planted firmly in him, to be built up by him in maturity, as Matt taught us about so helpfully last week, about us us being presented fully mature in, in Jesus. And that any other course of action will only serve to distract us and lead us to disappointment. But why is Paul so keen to emphasize this? Why is he so keen to get this across? Well, remember the reason for this letter. Paul was in prison. He was visited by Epaphras, who led the Colossian church. And Epaphras gave him this report. Look, the church is doing pretty well, but we're starting to face some pressures. We're starting to face some temptations, some some calls to kind of leave Jesus behind and, and go for more. There's almost a sense that the Colossians are being offered this platinum door that they can go through, that actually there's more than Jesus you don't just need Jesus, you need Jesus plus something else. And, and this, this kind of sense of the Christians being drawn away and, and tempted away, it's kind of referred to by scholars as this Colossian philosophy that was around at the time. So let's take a closer look at that. Let's try and unpack and understand just what was going on. Because actually, there was, a, there was a whole mixture of internal and external things going on, a whole mixture of different kinds of philosophy and temptation for the Colossians. Paul starts by describing philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That's in verse 8. What we get a a sense of here is some sort of worldly pagan influence, some sort of worldly wisdom that's trying to pull the church away from following Jesus and say, look, this wisdom, this worldly stuff is more, it's better, it's better than what you've got in Jesus. It's most likely arguments and ideas, these philosophies and empty deceits, which sought to replace and increase on and and beat the gospel. Like cultural narratives and worldly wisdom of the day that, that presented themselves as wiser than Christ. But then Paul's focus shifts as we go on when he gets to verses 11 to 14, as well as this worldly stuff. We see actually there's a religious based threat as well. He starts talking about circumcision. You remember when we did a season, uh, a series ages ago on Galatians, there was an issue with Jewish people telling, that the, Christ, telling the Christians that they still needed to obey Jewish law. They still needed to be circumcised. They still needed to follow Jewish uh, religions, religious customs and practices in order to keep God happy. And it's happening again in, Coloss- in Colossae. They're being told that there's, there's put, being put pressure on the Christians that they've got to conform to these Jewish ways. They've got to comply with the law as well as following Jesus. And then Paul moves on to kind of talk about a hybrid of the two, of, of the religious and the worldly. He talks about food and drink and festivals and Sabbath and even angel worship, all of which are distractions and rituals and practices that the Colossians are being told, you need to do this. You need to do these things to unlock new levels of God. You need to do these things as well as just following Jesus. And Paul is worried that the Colossians are going to be judged by other people based on what they do or don't eat or drink or follow or worship and how much importance they place on certain rituals and events. It's dangerous. Whether or not it's worldly wisdom which tempts them away or religious legalism, the Colossian Christians are being told, you're not complete. There's more available to you. There's better than Jesus. You may have accepted Jesus, but you can gain even more if you just go for this or that. 
by abstaining from certain foods, by having certain bits of the body cut off, or by celebrating specific festivals and holy days, they could unlock new levels of holiness and favor with God, almost like this spiritual platinum door that they could walk through if they just act the right way. And Paul's message in Colossians is don't fall for it. Just like Frasier and Niles, you won't find a new extra level of satisfaction behind these platinum doors of deception, but rather you'll be left among the rubbish and you'll see it's exposed for what it is. These are empty, deceptive philosophies. Paul talks later on in Colossians, in, in, in his chapter, about there, these are a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. There's no secret extra level of holiness there's no platinum membership of God's church. And he wants us to be certain that all we need to do is walk with Jesus, root ourselves in him, and we will grow, we will become mature. We don't need worldly wisdom. We don't need religious law keeping. You're not missing out on anything by not having those things. And I wanna give you two reasons, kind of with a mathematical theme about why the Colossian philosophy just doesn't add up. And then we'll, at the very end, we're going to look at some ways in which the Colossian philosophy might actually still be around today in 21st century Liverpool. So here's the first reason, a mathematical reason why the Colossian philosophy doesn't stand up. And it's this, that Jesus is 100% God. These philosophies are useless to, to us because actually in Jesus, we have the fullness of God. The Colossians are being told, do this, do that, obey this, obey that, act this certain way, and you'll unlock new levels of godliness. Jesus isn't enough, you need more, you need Jesus plus. But Paul says, this is nonsense. We, we heard from Sarah Kenny a couple of weeks ago from Colossians 1, where she read that amazing passage about Jesus that Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over creation. He's all things were created through and for him. All in, in him, all things hold together for in him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And today's passage in verse nine, it says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is super important. In Jesus, in the son of God, is the fullness of God himself. All of God's power and glory and might and compassion and love and tenderness and forgiveness and miracle working came to earth to dwell and live amongst us. That is incredible. The most powerful being in the universe chose to place all of his power, every bit of it, into a human body and live a human existence to the full with everything that entails. Again, if you know me at all, you'll know that I'm a little bit obsessed with another TV series called The Chosen. It's a beautiful telling and, and illustration of Jesus's life. And in a recent episode, episode, we see this fullness of God, but also fullness of humanity in Jesus illustrated beautifully. There's a day where Jesus basically heals people from dawn till dusk all day without a break, without any food, without any drink. He sits in a, in, in a tent and people come to him and all day he just heals and heals and heals. He pours out the power and mercy and healing ability of God into every person he meets. He heals every disease because he is fully God. But then at the end of the episode, we see that he's also fully human because as Jesus returns to his tent, he is utterly exhausted emotionally and physically drained. 
He even needs the help of his mother, Mary, to remove his sandals and wash his feet. And he kind of just falls into bed, muttering a prayer of thankfulness to his father and conking out to sleep. Now, The Chosen, of course, is a TV program. It's got all sorts of artistic license, but actually in this episode, it's simply confirming what the Bible tells us, that Jesus is fully God, that he healed all who came to him, but he also had our human limitations. We see in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus being hungry, being tired, experiencing grief, needing to withdraw and be alone. In him, the fullness of God dwelled, and yet he was a fully human being. This is brilliant news for us and it gets better in verse 10 it says this and you you anyone who is a christian has been filled in him him who is the head of all rule and authority just wrap your head around that for a moment all of god's power all of god dwells in jesus and jesus's power and presence dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised, didn't he? He promised that you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes. I'm gonna send him to you. When I go up to heaven, he says to his disciples, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to fill you up and you will do even greater things than me. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus and the fullness of Jesus dwells in us by his spirit. That is incredible. And it's so important that we grasp this because by knowing this, we can just root out and reject anything like these Colossian philosophies which try and tell us that there's more available to us, that there's better than Jesus, that there's something we can have that will give us more satisfaction, more pleasure, more joy than Jesus because our answer just has to be, how can we have more than 100% of God dwelling in us? We have him fully. He's filling us up. He's empowering us. He's guiding us. He's ministering to us. He's loving us. How could we possibly need more than that? How could we possibly desire anything else? And you know what? It's inexhaustible. God doesn't run out. Jesus, we don't get to a point where we've, we've, we exhaust Jesus. I remember on holiday once as a, as a youngster, um, my sister was, we went, went swimming one day and my sister was having an argument after getting out of the pool about why she was taking so long to get dry. She took way longer this day than she had done the previous day. And she, and she angrily shouted at my mum, well, of course it's taking me longer than yesterday because yesterday we only swum for half an hour and today we've swum for an hour, so I'm wetter, it's gonna take me longer. Now, clearly my sister didn't understand the concept of saturation. But actually, with Jesus, we can never be saturated. He's fully God and we can never get to the end of him. There's always more of Jesus to explore. We don't need to look anywhere else. We can't exhaust him. Any sense that he's not enough, that we need more, is nonsense. If we're told that we need more than Jesus, it should never pass the test. We don't need more than Jesus. We need more of Jesus and there's always more of him. We don't need other philosophies, we don't need other things on offer, other worldly things. They will never satisfy us in the way that Jesus satisfies us. That's the first thing. That's the first reason why the Colossian philosophy doesn't stand up. We don't need more than Jesus because in Jesus is 100% of God and he's in us. The second thing, the second kind of mathematical thing is that salvation is 100% down to Jesus and 0% down to us. These empty philosophies and religious requirements that they were trying to put on the Colossians don't add up because salvation is all about Jesus. That's basic Christianity and it's what sets us apart from any other religion. 
We need to reject any philosophy and any religious instruction that says you must do X or Y or Z to fully confirm your salvation. You have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, that, or the other to be saved. Verse six is so significant. It says, you received Christ. Just get that a minute. We don't bring anything to the equation but our sin. Our sin, our disobedience. We can't fix it. We can't erase it by our own efforts. We can't, all we can do is turn from it, repent and say sorry to God. And in doing that, we then receive the one who can remove it all. We often talk about when we become a Christian about giving our lives to Jesus, but I prefer this language from, from Paul here. It's not about us giving our lives. It's about us receiving Jesus. It's all about him. In Colossae, the Jews were telling the Christians, the newly converted Christians, many of whom were Gentiles, they were saying, you need to be circumcised to be fully saved. You need to follow the Jewish law to be fully acceptable to God. Now, circumcision was an ancient physical symbol of God's covenant with Israel. It was a powerful and significant physical act of sacrifice, which demonstrated dedication to God. But with the death of Jesus, we have a far greater, far more significant, far more important physical sacrifice. He didn't just surrender a small part of his flesh. He submitted his entire body to be broken and beaten and put to death. In verse 11, Paul says, in him, you were circumcised by a circumcision not made by human hands. It was a physical sacrificial act that Jesus did uh, which, which is, is our circumcision now. We don't need to do what the Jews had done to them and what they did in, in, in childbirth. This act alone, Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion, that's the act of circumcision that we need. Salvation for us doesn't depend on what we do to our bodies, but on what Christ allowed to be done to his body. God put his fullness into Jesus and that amazing human Jesus lived a perfect life before giving up that life as a sacrifice and dying a sinless death to pay for our sin-filled lives. And Paul uses a, a really helpful image, another metaphor, if you like, to drive this home further. In verse 13 to 14, he says, you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, nailing it to the cross. Such a vivid image. See, the Bible tells us that God is this perfect, holy creator of the universe, a heavenly father who loved and made us. And through his law, he shows us how to live. And because of who he is and who we are, we live in reference to him. We owe God our obedience. If that's their only right response as humans to a God who has done everything that he's done for us. The only right response is to follow his rules and live in respect to him. Essentially, we're born, if you like, with an I owe you to God. God, I owe you my obedience. And yet on the day we die, if we were to stand before God with this IOU of obedience and show him how we'd lived our lives, he would only be able to look at the evidence and declare without a doubt that we failed to pay the IOU up. The IOU promises God obedience, but we live lives full of disobedience. But Paul knows, Paul graphically tells us here that our IOU has already been taken care of. The debt has been paid. Jesus died for our disobedience and sin. 
Paul says when he did that, it's as if our IUs were literally taken and nailed to the cross with Jesus. They died with him. The debt we owe disappeared on that day Jesus died on Calvary. The obedient life that we owe to God was lived for us by Jesus. And God is delighted to replace our record of sin with Jesus' record of 100% obedience. When we repent and we receive Jesus, we receive the free gift of forgiveness and our debt is fully paid. We're totally forgiven for every sin, past, present and future. It's paid for, it's washed away through no work of our own. So why would we listen when someone tells us we need to do X, Y or Z to earn God's forgiveness and favour? Why would we bother to make sacrifices uh, to, to try and achieve our, um, our own forgiveness when Jesus has done it all for us? He's the only one qualified to do it all for us. Jesus has done 100% of what is necessary for us to be reconciled to his Father ever, ever. We do nothing. And we need to reject any philosophy, any religious pressure that tells us that there's more that we need to do to earn God's favour because it cannot be earned. But his forgiveness is freely given through his love in Jesus when we repent and we receive him. So that's the second reason why the Colossian philosophy just doesn't stack up. We've seen that number one, uh, Jesus is fully God. We don't need more than him. We need more of him. And number two, our salvation is 100% down to Jesus. We started this preaching series by saying that Paul's letter 2,000 years ago to these people in ancient Turkey, in Colossae, has still got massive relevance for us. Now, deceptive philosophies and empty deceit these days may not be about new moon feasts and angel worship and circumcision, but goodness me, we still face huge amounts of pressure from worldly wisdom and religion. They can still threaten us and damage us and derail us from following God. Think about some of the worldly wisdom that is around today. It's widespread, it's enticing, uh, and our society just gulps it up and believes it today. We're told that we can have better than Jesus. We're told that there are better things, more enjoyable things than him. We're told that the wealthier we are, if we have more money, we'll be happier. We should make that the goal of our lives. We're told that if we sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want, that's a free choice that will just bring us total pleasure, greater pleasure than we could ever get in Jesus. We're told that we can find complete satisfaction in the things that we own in our possessions. We're told that we can identify however we want, that we can be whoever we want to be and we'll find fulfillment in that. We're told that fame is something to be desired and striven for and that that will give us satisfaction. Now, don't get me wrong, wealth and pleasure and sex and possession and fame, none of them are wrong in and of themselves in, in the right context, but they can become idols. They become objects of worship which replace God. Things that we place a higher importance for, things that we start to lust after and crave, thinking that they're going to give us more than what we already have in God. We get told that we need them more than God, that they'll satisfy us more than him, that we'll be happier with more of those things in our lives than we would with more of God in our lives. And the truth is, it's nonsense. They don't satisfy us. We're left going through these platinum doors of deception and they simply distract us from God and leave us empty and lacking and wanting more. Only God can truly satisfy us 
It's him who we need to desire. It's him who we need to follow and root ourselves in. And that is how we become fully mature and fully satisfied. And what about, what about religion? What about the religious pressures we might face? We may not have people pressuring us to be circumcised like the, the Colossians did, but there are elements of misleading religious teaching that threaten to distract and derail us even today. What about prosperity teaching, that increased wealth and health and comfort are available to us if we just do this or that, if we just say this prayer, or even if we just make this donation, if we just do that, then we'll unlock new levels of favor with God. Or what about actually the religion, religious pressure of competitive comparison, this over-focus on holiness, trying to match up and keep up with others by praying this, this amount of time or reading this amount of books or listening to this amount of podcasts and preachers or, or not listening to that certain preacher and trying to be as holy as we can so that we keep up appearances. That's another pressure that we can face. And what about legalism? This sense that we must strictly obey certain laws or rules, otherwise God will be displeased with us. He'll reject us if we, if we don't make these, these very strict choices in our lives. You might have even seen an element of this in lockdown. On either, set, either end of the scale, for example, with vaccinations, some people are saying you're not truly following God unless you take the vaccine. And other people are saying you're being really disobedient to God if you take the vaccine. And it becomes a holiness and a righteousness for us when God is our righteousness. God is all we need. I wonder, as you just think this morning, maybe take a, a moment just to, just to consider, are any of these things just starting to threaten you? Are any of these things just starting to act like these platinum doors of deception? Things that promise something on the other side, but actually the more you pursue them, the more you're going to realise they're not, they're not what they seem to be. Is your relationship with God in danger of becoming all about our efforts to please him? or look good to others? Are we looking for grand acts of extreme obedience to curry favour with him when he's already poured out his love for us in abundance so that we don't need anything but his son? Guys, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the empty deceit, the hollow philosophies and the religious pressure. We have everything we need in Jesus and there's more of him and more of him and more of him. If we just root ourselves, if we just stick with him, and allow him to, the fullness of him, to just pour out into our lives by his spirit. Let's just keep going with Jesus.